Welcome everyone to the C-Suite Marketing Perspectives podcast. And I'm Steve McDonald, your host. Today, we have a really interesting conversation. In fact, Gail Nixon is here with us. Gail, you're a, a multiple time B2B CMO in the SaaS space, but you've got a way of looking at things and predicting marketing spend, forecasting marketing spend. Actually, flipping the model in terms of instead of looking at marketing attribution after the fact, how do we actually look at it beforehand down to every single tactic and predicting what kind of an ROI you're getting out of that? You, you create an entire model in order to do this. So yeah. maybe do a little better job than I did there uh, introducing yourself. And then let's talk about this idea of why CMOs need to be better forecasters. Excellent. Thank you so much, Stephen. Really, I'd like to say this is a pleasure to be part of your uh, podcast series and also an honor. I just want to say thank you. And I'm super excited to get into this conversation. So yes, I love the title of why CMOs need to be great forecasters. I really do strongly believe this. I think so many times people will say, I'm a data-driven marketer or I'm a data-driven CMO. And typically that definition is really tied around, like you said, the attribution after what marketing does and looking at how marketing has spent money and what we were able to achieve from a pipeline generation and a bookings perspective and attribution wise. So I wanted to flip that script and be, you know, replicate what sales do. They basically forecast, right? And with marketing, we're handed a budget every year. And I wanted to be fiscal responsible, fiscal, fiscal responsible around what I do with this money so that I can have internal conversations with my stakeholders ahead, stakeholders ahead of time being the CFO or the vice president of finance or the, or the partner, the, market, the finance partner with my function, as well as with the CEO and especially with the CRO. They know that we have the money to spend, but they want to know that we're going to spend it in the right places that are going to get the right results for the team and for the business. So I put in place a model that um, was about five years ago, five to seven years ago, and it has evolved over time, but a model that would help the whole marketing team forecast on what we expect to get from all of the tactics we plan to do by quarter, by half, and by year um, with the money that we're going to spend so that when we're building budgets for the year, we're able to go to the finance team and to the CRO and to other stakeholders and say, we know we have X amount of dollars and here's what we expect to get from it through from um, an MQL, SQL, SQO is a new term these days, as well as sales qualified opportunity, but also from a pipeline and bookings. Because we know that at the at every business, we all want to be able to create a predictable demand funnel from a marketing perspective, from an AE perspective, from an SDR perspective, and from a customer success perspective. And we know that we have targets to hit, but if we don't know what we're going to forecast, it's like, how do you know how to hit the target? So I implemented forecasting and it has helped me meet and exceed my sales team targets, you know, sales marketing, go-to-market targets with having this model in place um, ahead of time because it also helps me hold the team accountable and helps them be focused, right? If we have a target, we're more likely to hit it than if we don't have a target um, in general in anything we do in life. But if we have that target, it also helps the team know what they're aiming for and help holding them accountable of what they need to do from these activities to what they need to get to. And it also helps make decisive decisions on cutting out activities where we don't believe we're going to get the ROI from the marketing spend and from the pipeline and bookings perspective as well. So when we're planning, 
we look line by line by all our targets based on what forecasting to predict what we get from them before we spend the money. So I, I know when our, like our past conversations, you've talked about, like it helps us eliminate these, you know, random acts of marketing, right? That we all know, like you could almost get to the point where there's just, you're driven by tactics because that's what we typically done. But those tactics haven't been put through that filter of, do they meet the bar in terms of, is it moving the business forward? And I want to ask you something in, in particular, because, you know, uh, as a CMO, we're constantly being held accountable. We're one of the biggest cost centers right in the company. So those conversations, like you had said with the CFO, a lot of those conversations go like this. As marketing, there's some things we can track. There's some things that we can't. So we just have to kind of agree that, you know, a big part of the cost that we're, the, you know, this cost center that we represent, we're just not going to be able to track that, right? And you scoffed at that in our first conversation. <laughs> tell us a little bit about when you say you can track down to every single tactic, tell us how you think about that, right? Because that's, that's a shift in the mentality of, oh, you know, branding, awareness, things like, how do we like track all these things that are, you know, not as tangible. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I think I think good examples events. Events can be either branding. You can say you're going to go to an event. It's going to be a lot of branding, which of course it is, because yeah, sometimes have to be at events because your competitors are there, and you need to be there to to show that you're you're in the game, right? So, events can be very much considered branding. But I like to take them and say, okay, what is the reach of this event? Say a thousand people are attending event. How many of these folks do we believe are we going to be able to talk to and have really engaging conversations that are going to help educate them on our solutions and our value propositions and how we can help them in their everyday job to make their life either more efficient, you know, save money, save time, whatever it might be. But how many of we, how many people we can actually engage with and how much do we expect from that engagement to come out with pipeline and booking? So I put in formulas in place within a, in a you know, a superpower Excel spreadsheet uh, with conversion rates to help the team predict based on the number of people that are going to be at the event of how many of these MQLs and SQLs and SQOs and pipeline are going to generate from this event. So that's just one example, but we do this across all of our tactics, but we do it based on a lot of how many people we believe we're going to reach at this point in time with a specific tactic at this specific time frame. So a lot of it depends on how many people you believe you can reach at one time with marketing to help create that predictable funnel. So you take, like, these are all the elements, right? You know, we go there because the right people are going to be there. So you say, okay, there can be X amount, right? Then how many conversations can we have? And how many conversations do we typically, because I know you're constantly refining your forecasting models too, right? That's the best part about it, Steve, because I am a, believe I'm a data-driven marketer. And as that data-driven marketer, I'm a person that always wants to raise the bar. So once you have a bar in place that year, you know what you were able to achieve from that. And you track that, you track that, those engaging conversations all the way down through the funnel. You're able to say, okay, for the next year, we're going to do the same event. We're going to raise the bar. How do we get 10% more conversation than we got last year, right? So that you're actually able to put bars in place so that everyone can rally around raising the bars across the go-to-market team, being customer success, sales, and as well as marketing. So it helps establish a bar, which is the best part and the funnest part I find about all this data-driven marketing stuff. 
to help show the business that you're progressing, that marketing is actually adding value to the business and that we're looking to raise the bar every year, year over year, and that we're able to contribute more to the, to the business year over year as well as the business grows and scales. Very, very important when you're working for a private equity-backed SaaS organization, as any type of private equity is going to be really around growth, you know, either an EBITDA growth or an ARR growth or NRR growth, depending on your style of um, software that you're offering to a, to a market and the product fit that it might be. But yes, it's all about being able to create predictable funnel and raising the bar quarter over quarter, year over year, and whatever it might be to help support the thesis of getting to an exit with a private equity firm. You know what you've just done? So this is what happens in sales, right? You, you meet your quota. What happens? We're going to raise the quota, right? That was the bar that we achieved. Now, how do we go above that? You just applied that same mentality to the marketing department, right? If we can do this, then how do we raise the bar and go here? Now, not all salespeople love to have their quotas raised on them, right? But what you're taking is something that's a, you know, it's a tried and true thing, right? This is something that happens in the industries. Like we always have to be pushing ourselves to improving and getting better. So how do you think about that in terms of, you know, reflecting back? Because a lot of data-driven marketers, like you said earlier, about or about post-valuation, right? But you're actually trying to develop the models and even the inputs and the KPIs up front that drive the ROI that gets then, you know, measured on the back end. Tell us a little bit more about that. I think that's, that's fascinating. Like you're, you're, you're digging deeper and trying to understand like the events example there. Cause I'll give you, I'll give you just before you answer this, um, we had a CMO on and in the economic climate we have this year, his budget shrinking and he had to take away things that they typically had just said, we always have to do this. And events were one of them, right? If we're not there, you know, people are going to notice us by our absence, right? So we have to be there. That was the ROI calculation. So they wiped out events. They took events off. And you know what they found out? They found out that that impacted by a factor of about 30% their demand gen campaigns because the lack of being at those events and present had an impact on other elements and other you know, elements of the demand gen campaigns that they had running. He said, you never would have known that, right? Unless you just kind of locked something off, but it was an experiment out of necessity that happened. So that was an ROI calculation that we don't typically have. You have in your forecasting model all kinds of ways that you're thinking about how were we inputting the right data in order to get the right conclusions and make the right decisions on the on the outside. And you've done this, and I think a level that's deeper than most CMOs go. So I think that's fascinating. And I just want to hear a little bit more about how you think about that. Yeah, sure. So it's really coming at it holistically, saying, okay. We know it's going to be a marketing mix. So let's look at the mix to your point. An event is part of a marketing mix because we're going to reach people in several different ways. One of the ways is this through a podcast, <laughs> just an example as well, right? It's another way of reaching people. An event is a way of reaching people. I will say since post-COVID, events have come back in a perspective where people really realize that face to you can't replace face-to-face, -face, an old phrase. But there is that value of that face-to-face -face of just not trying to do everything virtually or online. So having those face-to-face -face engaging conversations definitely helps. 
Although to your question, I think it's more too than just looking at always the demand funnel. It's also the customer acquisition cost. It can also be lifetime value of a customer, right? So there are different marketing measurements that we're looking at all the time. Um, it could be the cost per lead, right? So if you're looking at your, we look at this as part of my analysis as well. If we're going to do an event, quite frequently events are 10,000 or more. What is that cost per lead going to be um, based on what could we be doing else with that money that we could get a cheaper or less cost, a less amount of for cost per lead, right? So that cost per lead is also a key factor in my model. And quite frequently, when the model's being built, marketers aren't looking at, that's the last column in my model, that's CPL. Right. But you know, I will sometimes see $3,000 CPL, CPLs that I'll ask the marketer to think more critically about, I want them to make the decision for themselves because they're going to be the next generation of marketing leaders. But why would we want to spend $3,000 on a, say, a cost per lead if we could do something else to get the cost per lead, say, under $500, Right. So we really try to take, a, take this analysis from different angles, slicing and dicing it at different angles, not just looking at everything from a demand funnel, which is obviously cost per lead. It's will be calculated into it, but thinking up front of what is that ROI going to be on that spend and really trying to make sure we're doing things that are must-haves versus nice-have. And then looking at the model and the data to make those decisions on this is a must-have because guess what? We're going to have a good cost per lead, customer acquisition cross across the business is going to be, a, a, you know, in the range that we want to spend, right? And so, and it's going to give us the return that we want on that money, which is, of course, hopefully we always want 100% or more return on what we spend, um, shooting for that as well. So putting benchmarks in place of what can we do to move those needles from different ways that we spend the money and different ways that we can analyze that data ahead of time. I do have an MBA and one of my favorite classes as part of my MBA was regression analysis. Um, so really taking a regression analysis perspective with the money you're going to spend ahead of time, just like your media firm would, right? But apply that regression analysis to everything that we do in marketing to ensure that it's going to give us the bang for the buck that we, the, and the outcome that we would want to be able to stay in front of a board that we spent this money and this is what we were able to get from it. So if you give us a million dollars more, we're going to give you three million back, right? We want a three x return or something like that. A big picture overview. That's the story we as CMOs would love to be able to tell in a boardroom and could be really proud of and could really stand behind. I smirked a little bit there because there's most of us CMOs out there that are saying, "I think I remember that term regression analysis," right? Let alone applying it the way that you are. But let me ask you something because this is. You know, there's, there are, there are tactics in our marketing campaigns that are, are very defined and you can see the, the clear return on investment. There are things that we do to get earlier in the buyer's, you know, journey. There's things that we do to build expertise, to build that trusted advisor status, thought leadership content as an example of that. How do you think of just a overall, the importance of thought leadership in this equation, right? And how do you apply ROI or this regression analysis to endeavors like that, like thought leadership? Yeah, thought leadership to me is very, very important. If I was to put it on a scale from one to 10, I would rate it a nine. Um, hard to say that anything's a 10 in this market, in this macro and economic that we're in. But 
it's a nine. Thought leadership is definitely a nine from my perspective and my experience, my 20 year experience career that I've had, that if you're working in a firm that has thought leadership presence, it's so helpful when a revenue person or a salesperson is in an opportunity to help them have the higher propensity to win that deal. Because someone at the other side of the table is more likely to buy from a thought leader because they know they might, they're going to get the expertise and the services and the products to support them. But at the end of the day, they also want to buy expertise and they want to know they're buying from somebody that has that thought leadership. Because I do think thought leadership also brings expertise. And so it's very important to me in developing the content that can help get that message in the market that you are a thought leader or being around other thought leaders in your industry is also really important in aligning your brand with those thought leaders. An example that I just implemented here at um, Comply is we just sort of thought we are about to launch a thought leadership program with PitchBook. They're a big thought leader and help with a lot of M&A data analysis and they have a database of over 2 million contacts. And so they have very valuable data that helps in the financial services markets across private equity, hedge funds, broker dealers, anywhere in the financial um, services market. So we just did, we're doing a thought leadership program with them and we just did a report. They did a, a survey analysis for us around specific areas where we believe we have product fit in services and educational services behind. So we did a report and we're about to launch the report. I'm so excited. We're giving exclusive rights to um, people that are attending. We have a user conference coming up in November, early November. We're going to be launching it to these few folks first. We're going to give them exclusive rights to it first. And then we're also going to have the pitch book um, and the analyst who, who helped us with the report come in and do a session so that we were able to articulate the report and the findings from it to this audience. It's very, over 300 people will be in this event in California in the next two weeks it is. And so we're super excited, but we're also going to tie that thought leadership report to having um, a session with people, a live session to give them the opportunity to ask questions around this thought leadership topic that we're focusing on. And then we'll be having a webinar, right? So it's very much taking a report that was a market study, which helps create thought leadership through that you understand your market. You know that you're making decisions as an organization based on the market to ensure what you're doing is going to be a good market fit or a product fit. So that's just one example of what I've just implemented here at Compliant. We'll be one of, we do many thought leadership programs, but this is just one specific program where we're aligning with another thought leader, which can really, really help as well. And influencers is also important. That how do you with that, that's a phenomenal, you know, thought leadership program you're talking about. How does this work into your forecasting model? So we have all of our metrics behind this. Okay. <laughs> yes. So before we spend the money um, to sign up for this particular thought leadership, we're referring to as thought leadership. It's also demand gen. It's also content. It kind of, it's a spectrum really of what we're going to do for disseminating this awesome content into the market and this thought leadership educational information into the market. Is we did we did the analysis before of what we believe we can get from, um, from the spe specific content from advertising it through um, media ads could be content syndication it could be programmatic could be on our website so we're looking at you know email all of the areas where we believe we can generate engagement from this particular report to the webinar we, that's another line on I'm like well, where do we believe how many people do we believe we can get to this webinar and what will that analysis look like right. At the session, do we believe that handing out this report 
um, I mean, sorry, at the user conference, we're going to be handing out the report, a print copy, a QR code as well. People that don't want print. Um, so we, you know, as well, what do we believe? So we take the holistic um, spend and we take all the things that we're going to do around this particular thought leadership initiative and content, um, developed all that KPI and modeling to forecast ahead of time before we spend the money. See, that is phenomenal. I love that because I'm sure part of that forecast in that model is you say, okay, the quality of the content that goes into, you know, all of the, on the website, the demand gen, the webinar, right? The better quality of the content, the better the ROI I expect and when I'm going to forecast. Yes. Oh, and that, now that's the key. I think that's why that you said, you know, content on a scale of one to 10, you put it as a nine, right? Because that the key to getting, raising the bar, as you're talking about before, the key to that is getting content that is worthy of your ICP spending time with. And there's stats out in the industry, if we want to be like data-driven about this, right, that say that over 70% of buyers say that the majority of thought leadership that they read isn't worth their time. So the bottom line is there's a lot of race to do thought leadership to raise the bar on the quality because we know the impact that, that will have on our campaigns, you know, on the ROI on the other side. However, what it points to is that it's pretty difficult to do that, right? It is. It is, yeah. Steve. And I will tell you, localizing your content to a market across the globe is also really important as well. So if your business is scaling in Europe, I would highly recommend that you're taking your content and localizing it to France, to Germany, to the UK, to Spain, whatever your market is, because those folks in those markets, if they do just reading US market type data or thought leadership content, it's not going to be relevant to them. And that's an area where I've seen in my career where marketers in the US just think that everyone wants to read US market information or thought leadership content. That is absolutely not the case. I've seen conversion rates drop significantly when you try to market a U.S. piece of content that is very relevant to a U.S. market, but not 100% applicable to another market. So my recommendation to those other marketers out there is always be thinking about how is your content related to the local market that you're in. I don't just mean translating it from, you know, U.S. English to French, for example, to, you know, to a different local language, I'm talking about the content itself. This is the content that you're doing, the market studies that you might do. Do those studies, spend the extra time and money to do those studies in their market because that's where they are and that's the information they want to really read about and learn about that will add value to their day-to-day -day, um, working day. So I heard that before as well and I do think it comes down to a lot of the content and localizing, localizing it to make sure it's fitting the ICP in that market. Yeah, localizing it by geography and also, you know, by vertical markets too, right? Because you can oh, go to a vertical market and say, okay, this is the entire world, right? But I live here, right? So really, really good advice. Um, I normally ask towards the end, I say, you know, hey, we've, we've talked about a lot. And what is the one thing that you want people to take away from this conversation? So I'm going to give you the choice to either answer that question or what haven't we talked about, right? That you think is important, either 
something that we haven't covered that we want to talk about or what's just the takeaway that we should be having from here? Either direction, it's up to you. I think the biggest takeaway as marketers, we want to be able to show that we're adding value to a business. Yes. And throughout my career, the way you can show that you're adding value through the business is all about the numbers. <laughs> it's not the soft marketing, it's the hard marketing and it's at the hard metrics. And for those that really want to become a CMO someday, and this is how I was able to, to, to get myself and help myself become a CMO is really making sure you, you, you know your data, you know, you know your metrics, you know your ICP, you're developing thought leadership content, you know your marketing mix, and that you're able to come to a boardroom and that you're fully prepared to talk about the ROI that you were able to get from the money that you've been given. And actually, that's an opportunity, right? That's a fiscal res responsibility. It's a big one as a CMO. You're giving multi-millions of dollars. It's, that's nothing to sneeze at. Coming back to that table to be able to say, I have a three or four X or 10 X return would be amazing. But what was your return on that spend is critical to becoming a CMO and feeling that fiscal responsibility. It's, it's an accountability. You're just as accountable um, as a CFO, as a CMO or a CRO or whatever it is in the business because you are responsible for money. And at the end of the day, you want to be able to say you spent it wisely and that you were able to get a return on it, just like your own money when you're investing into a market. You want a return on that money. And I take, I feel, I've always felt, and I was trained this way, um, through a CML I had for 10 years, and he did train me this way to say, Gail, like you, you really want to be able to show that ROI if you want to get to that next level. And so just come with an ROI mindset and look at your, what you're doing with the macroeconomics that we have. Again, what are the must-haves versus the nice-haves? And how is it going to help the business from getting money back in return? And that in, in terms of ARR, NRR, could be services, it could be something else, but really looking at what you're doing to ensure that it's going to provide the right return. That, and at the end of the day, you could say, I've been fiscal responsible with the money I've been given. Um, and that next year, if I'm given more, which is always the goal of marketers, hoping they go on a macro you can get more money next year because they're going to trust that you're going to get that return, that 3X or whatever that return might be on that money. But that's what I would recommend um, to all marketers in this day and age, because it is all about being able to provide those metrics on what you're able to get from that money. I love it. I, I, I wish we had another half hour or so to talk because um, it's just fascinating, your, your perspective and, and how you break things down and the idea of just the idea of forecasting. Right. We very few CMOs forecast in advance what they expect. Instead, we, we kind of know by gut what, what's worked in the past. So we're going to keep doing that. And we look at it afterwards. Um, but then that allows you to raise the bar, like you said. And, it, and it's important, Steve, just to say that you're looking at your actuals from those forecasts so that you're able to fine tune your forecast that we said in the beginning. So the forecast might not always be right, and especially if it's something new you've never done before, because as marketers, you're supposed to be thinking outside the box to reach people. So, you know, take a stab at something, even if you might not know, you got to put a stake in the ground. So you have that target to shoot for, but then look at the actuals for what you're able to achieve from that so that you're able to fine tune your model, make it more predictable in AI, right? All that fun stuff that we are talking about these days with generative AI, that those mod that generative AI can help you with predicting those models based on that historical data and putting that in there too. So those actuals are still really important um, as much as the forecasting. I think they're equally important if I could leave with that. 
Fantastic. If, if there were uh, follow-on questions that people had, would providing them a link to your uh, LinkedIn profile, would that be the best way to, to get a hold of you? That would be excellent. I'd really appreciate that, Steve. And feel free to reach out to me as other marketers. You know, we all are, all are in this together and trying to be better and better every day. So I'm a big person that believes in hashtag better together. So please reach out to me. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on and sharing all these insights. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for your time, Steve. I really appreciate this.